Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Well, happy weekend to you. This will be the final Ron show before the Christmas holiday. And by the way, uh, in case you're wondering, when this show normally airs, Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. I do have holiday music lined up for you. Some unconventional, some interesting, twi- but still very festive, very holiday sounding. So if uh, you're out and about running your errands or you're just one of those loyal Sun up to sundown, America One Radio listeners. Well, first of all, we're very grateful for that. Second of all, just enjoy some holiday music on me for a, a, a good hour there. Just a little break from the dialogue. I know a lot of the uh, programs that air before and after are running some best of programming. I may do a little bit of that next week myself. Maybe, maybe not. But on Monday, nothing but music. Nothing but music. I want to uh, begin my show w- with uh, a little bit of a, uh, a holiday vibe. Um, I'm going to share a message from Reverend Mitri Reheb. He is the founder and president of Dar El Kalima University. He shares an interesting perspective on the Christmas story in its relation to the Palestinian people. By the way, the city of Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank in Israel, of course, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, announced the cancellation of traditional Christmas festivities in mourning and honor of Palestinian citizens killed in Gaza. In the social media era, we've seen a lot of our evangelical friends and family members will share memes or wishes that they'd like to see Christ back in Christmas. I actually don't disagree with that. I'm not religious, but I I don't disagree with that. I think We've seen Christmas become this hyper-marketed event for engorging ourselves on food and toys and gifts. I mean, it's gotten to be so reductive now, we almost annually laugh now about the new Lexus in the driveway with the huge red bow on it, right? I mean, that's, it's just, it's, it's to the point now where we, we as a people have finally kind of understood how crazy the marketing arm has gotten over uh, the Christmas holiday that automakers think that one spouse is going to go out and make a twenty to $30,000 purchase without the other spouse knowing about it or without his or her input and that that's going to be a joyful sight on Christmas morning and not, how did you swing that? Does this change our insurance payment? Did you trade in my other, all these other questions that come up, you know? And the sad thing is I can't even be the fogey who talks about, well, back in my day, no, back in my day, it was pretty commercialized too. We had adults fighting over Cabbage Patch Kids dolls, just dolls, just dolls with plastic faces and unique names and birth certificates at toy stores and shopping malls. I can remember, I don't remember how old I was, maybe seven, eight years old, the Christmas we got the Atari 2600. And you have to imagine what that was like for a kid back then. We didn't have mobile devices and games on them and computerized. We didn't have any of that. And so to get the Atari 2600 meant, you mean I don't need a ride to the mall to go to the arcade with a roll of quarters 
to play video games until the quarters run out. I can just stay home in my PJs and play video games all I want. Oh man, it was game changing. It really was game changing. And I, I remember that Christmas, what was so cool about it was not only did you get the Atari 2600 from Santa, but somehow my aunt and my uncle knew that Santa was pulling that. And somehow my mom and dad and my grandparents, like they all bought video games and other things to go with it to make sure that the experience of getting that Atari was going to be complete. As I got older, it was the electronic keyboard that I, by the way, never learned how to play the piano with. Never, never did. My God, I feel so guilty about this now. But something happened as a kid. I was marketed in some way, shape, form, or fashion that I needed that electronic keyboard that I never made use of. I'm trying to think what else. I got a, my own stereo system when the CD players came out with the CD player and Santa brought that and mom, dad, aunt, and uncle, grandparents, they all had the CDs. Like, how, how did they How did they know? Were they talking? Were they working in conjunction with Santa? <clears throat> so, yeah, I can't talk about coming up in an era where we just played with a, a wooden block carved out to form a car and we were grateful to have it. I didn't grow up on Walton Mountain, you know. Um, it's all, it's been commercialized. It's been like this for a long time. And TBS will rerun the, the, the uh, Christmas story movie and you can see how commercialized it's, it's, uh, it's told to us then that Christmas was in the 1940s, 1950s, right? 1930s. Was it maybe little orphan Annie? Um, and that's actually when I think Christmas sort of lost its uh, religious connotation in the United States, if I'm being honest with you. The advent of the radio and broadcasting and the ability to mass market in such a manner at the blink of an eye. So, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with folks when they say, oh, I'd like to see Christ put back into Christmas. And a little bit more uh, moderation and time spent together and reflecting on what Jesus Christ espoused throughout his lifetime and how his birth is supposed to be the mark of the beginning of that philosophical evolution, right? But again, we've, we've lost sight as a country, as a society, the Western world, we've lost sight of what Christmas is supposed to be about. And dare I say, in many ways, Christianity has lost sight of Jesus' principles. The, the very nature of his being born while his parents were on the run, they were refugees, and not exactly welcome where they were, being chased down by an evil Herod, right? I told you I'm not religious, but I remember the story. <laughs> and today, as, as our Senate is, is leaving for their holiday vacations and uh, trying to tackle uh, an aid package to assist Ukraine, Israel, which we can talk about the religious connotations and ties to Jesus there, obviously, because Bethlehem's in the occupied West Bank. and They're not doing religious ceremonies because they're mourning the loss of anywhere from 20,000 or more Palestinians. 
in Gaza. But here at home, our senators, our, our House of Representatives, and at some time, point in time, our president, are all involved in negotiations on how to treat folks who come to our southern border, fleeing destabilization economically, criminally, politically, in Latin American countries. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a Latin American country that the United States hasn't had its smudgy, our smudgy fingerprints all over since the 1900s. The caricature of the religious right-winger now, and it's, is it really a caricature if it kind of sticks, is of the reliable Republican voter with the white Jesus painting in the hallway White Jesus resembling more a member of Credence Clearwater Revival than actual Jesus, imploring that we remember that Jesus is the reason for the season, and yet not really connecting the dots that Jesus was also the child of refugees fleeing hostility, looking for a safe place to give birth to what would be their Lord and Savior. And don't even get me started on the natural-born citizen part. I mean, the Republican Party wants to change that, too. Now, Jesus' birth and its story in relation to the current conflict between Israel and the Palestinian people of Gaza. Here is Reverend Mitri Raheb. The Christmas story, actually, is a Palestinian story par excellence. It talks about a family in Nazareth, in the north of Palestine, that is uh, ordered uh, by an imperial decree of the Romans uh, to evacuate to Bethlehem, to go there and register. And this is exactly what our people in Gaza has been experiencing these 75 days. Uh, it talks about uh, Mary, the pregnant woman, uh, on the run, uh, exactly like 50,000 uh, women uh, in Gaza who are actually displaced um, Jesus was born actually as a refugee. There was no place at the end for him to be born. So he was put uh, in a manger. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what also the kids uh, that are coming to life these days in, in Gaza are experiencing. You know, uh, most of the hospitals are uh, damaged, uh, out of service. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, uh, there is no delivery places for all of these pregnant uh, women in Gaza. And then you have the, the bloodthirsty Herod that uh, ordered to kill the kids uh, in Bethlehem to stay in power. Uh, and in Gaza, over 8,000 kids, they have been murdered uh, for Netanyahu to stay in power. Mm. Uh, um, and, uh, and you have this uh, message that the angels declared here, uh, glory to God in the highest peace on earth, which was actually a critique of the empire uh, because glory uh, belongs to the almighty and not to the mighty. And uh, the peace uh, that Jesus came to proclaim is not the peace, the Pax Romana, the peace that is based on subjugation uh, and military oppression, but on human dignity, equality, and justice. Uh, and this is actually what we call for. And I have to say, I find it uh, really a shame that uh, that in this season, 
where uh, every church uh, hears these words, peace on earth, that the United States is vetoing even a ceasefire. It's a shame. And on that note, actually, there's an update. The UN Security Council with the United States abstaining passed a watered-down version calling for not a ceasefire, but conditions to lead to a cessation of military action. Of course, one of those terms that I think everyone would agree with, Hamas has to release hostages, for certain. But one thing that Reverend Raheb said really stuck with me, and I'm not a religious person, but if you are, glory belongs to the Almighty, not the Mighty. Did that hit you the same way it hit me? Now, I know folks bristle at getting together at the holidays and talking with family about some heady political stuff, but if you're going to wander into that conversation... The story of Jesus' birth teaches us a lot that we should be taking to heart here in these United States. Back after this. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Final show before the jolly fat man comes jamming down your chimney. If you don't have a chimney, uh, you might want to leave a can or the mat or something. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, yesterday we spent a good deal of time admonishing the Atlanta Public School District for saying, Oh, cool, Governor Kemp is going to dole out those $1,000 bonuses. Well, we already gave you all that bonus because we knew it was coming. So if you thought you were getting a second bonus, well, we didn't tell you you actually weren't getting a second bonus because his bonus is going to recoup what we bonus. Yeah, it was (laughs) maybe next year they'll have that spelled out a little bit better, but uh, it it seems that the Atlanta public school system has decided to just eat that mistake. And it's a 40-something thousand dollar mistake, by my math anyway. Uh, The story from WANF Television, Atlanta News First here in Atlanta. Morning, Atlanta Public Schools reversing course. Now going with Governor Brian Kemp's plan to provide bonuses to its employees. So in a statement, APS said, we are committed to passing along any additional funds once funds are dispersed for the governor's proposal and clarification is provided on which categories of employees should be covered by these bonuses. Here's where the confusion is. Earlier this week, Governor Mm -hmm. Kemp announced that uh, teachers and employees, including teachers, would be getting a $1,000 bonus. The Atlanta Public School District told employees the state's retention bonus was already included in their checks on December 14th. The district then said the money from the governor would be used to reimburse uh, funding for the bonuses that were already given out. Then the Georgia school superintendent got involved. He sent a letter to APS criticizing the district's decision. He told superintendents that the State Department would send money out in a special payment and the district could, do, could then make those payments in January. It's still not clear yet uh, which employees will get the additional money and when, but it looks like they will be getting another check. I want to turn our attention to a story that uh, dropped Monday in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Ariel Hart, reporting that Georgia is disenrolling children from Medicaid in greater numbers than most other states, many of whom may actually be eligible for coverage, according to information released Monday by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The news came on the same day Georgia announced a new allocation of $54 million to bolster and repair the understaffed effort. Understaffed effort? Georgia state government? No. Repair the understaffed effort to requalify the state's Medicaid recipients. Georgia officials made the decision one month after an Atlanta Journal-Constitution report documented a processing system so broken that enrollees are often given instructions that are impossible to follow or information on a cell phone screen that contradicts what they see on a desktop screen 
for the same Medicaid accounts. Further down the article, federal officials in their briefing Monday morning called for Georgia and eight other states to take action to ensure children are not being dropped by mistake. They suggested that Georgia take such measures as extending the time that parents are given to file new paperwork, conducting more targeted outreach, and allowing Medicaid insurance contractors to help process renewals. And HHS officials suggested the states expand its Medicaid rules to cover teens who no longer qualify when they turn 19. In the first six months after Georgia began updating its Medicaid rules this March, the state dropped 149,000 children from the health insurance program, according to the data. Georgia was number three in the nation for the number of children dropped from Medicaid. Put that in reverse. That means Georgia's 47th when it comes to keeping kids on Medicaid. Federal officials and public advocates believe many of the children still qualify for the coverage, but were dropped in error, most often due to paperwork errors, either by the family or by the state. This goes back to my assertion that in general, conservatives, Republicans, have a hard time ever saying, you know what, we were wrong. This is the wrong way to go about this, and maybe we need to think of it in a different way. They don't do that. Well, Georgia Democratic leaders yesterday held a Zoom press conference and went to town. This Zoom press conference included State Senator Nan Orrock, uh, Georgia House Leader James Beverly, and Representative Dr. Michelle Au. Now, truth be told, I wanted to have some audio of this yesterday, but if there's if there's one thing that I, I think the, the Georgia Democratic Party doesn't do a very good job of, it's uh, saving video of stuff like this when they hold press conferences. They do it on the Statehouse steps all the time, and it's never streamed live on their YouTube channel. In fact, I don't know that the Georgia Democratic Party has a YouTube channel. I think they do, but I don't think they've done anything with it for a year or two. Come on, guys, get with it. You need social media people. Uh, however, Dr. Michelle Au did share some video from this conference. And honestly, she chose a great clip because this is her saying something that Stacey Abrams said when she was running in 2022. But the way Dr. Al worded it, there's no way she can get skewered on it. First, listen to the clip and then I'll explain what I'm talking about. Now, people make mistakes, right? Administrations sometimes try new things and all this is fair and understandable. And it's part of life. Mm-hmm. but. When a leader and an administration insists, insists on making the same bad choices over and over and over again for more than a decade, in defiance of expert recommendations, in defiance of fiscal logic and prudence, and in defiance of the well-being of Georgia's children, even while touting our state as the best place to live, work, and raise a family, that's not a mistake, right? That's not an experiment. That is a willful commitment to hold the line on partisan ideology, even when it's determined again and again and again that such bad choices and poor leadership hurts real people. Georgia's kids deserve better than this. So I think Dr. Al actually framed this conversation better. And maybe she learned from Stacey Abrams when Stacey said this. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. When you're number 48 for mental health, when you're number one for maternal mortality, when you have an incarceration rate that's on the rise and wages that are on the decline, then you're not the number one place to do to live in the United States. But we can get there, Gwinnett. Now, I mean, I understand what Stacey Abrams was saying. Unfortunately, she handed a soundbite to her GOP rival. And of course, uh, his campaign made good use of that. So what Dr. Al said was not... Exactly all that different, just, I think, better stated. 
Yeah, Stacy got skewered for saying Georgia's the worst state because sound bites carry or bury campaigns. But Dr. Al sound bit this argument coherently and without giving the right fodder to twist it. Kudos to her on that. And I'm appreciative of the fact that uh, she and many House and Georgia Senate Democrats have been pushing for the governor to expand Medicaid. So much so that because this continues to be a problem in the state, as she mentioned, for a decade or more, since obviously it's been, what, 14 years since the Affordable Care Act came into existence and Medicaid expansion was on the table with a heap and help of federal assistance, much to the chagrin of Georgia, one of the few states left that hasn't accepted it. Now, Georgia Republicans, we've said this before, are actually considering some form of Medicaid expansion. We'll all wait with bated breath, won't we? More on show after this on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So the final show before the holiday break, and I hope you guys have done all... I did my grocery shopping today. I mean, I'm only like taking care of myself. I have one uh, holiday function Christmas Eve with uh, some friends. I'm looking forward to that. Christmas Day is essentially a day off for me, and I may dip down to go see a nephew or two. I don't know. I don't, I don't have to. I don't know. Anyway, hope, hopefully you're all set and uh, have avoided the rush. Today's supposed to be the busiest day uh, for folks coming in for the holidays at Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson Airport, or even going through it, maybe. So uh, hopefully you're already where you need to be. Otherwise, well, hey... I'm grateful that you're listening while stuck in traffic because you're definitely stuck in traffic. Um, let's go to Detroit. Have you have y'all heard the latest on the Trump 2020 kerfuffle? Uh, we may see some new indictments coming, y'all. Another shocking development in this election of 2020. We're still learning so much more as this develops. But take a look at some video and let's talk about what happened. Now, according to the Detroit News, in these recordings, these are phone calls, okay? This was election night that President Donald Trump, at the time president, told Wayne County canvassers Monica Palmer and William Hartman that they would look terrible, quote unquote, if they certified the election results after they first voted in opposition and then later in the same meeting voted to approve the result. Now, he spoke with the former vice chair of Wayne County Board of Canvassers who said they had already certified the election results. But Palmer and Hartman walked out of that meeting and then never returned. And even though the meeting wasn't officially over, they had already voted to certify. It did seem suspicious at the time. Now, he says it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Take a listen. Now we know what happened, why they did not come back in. They were told by the president of the United States of America not to do their job and not to complete the certification, which was just, it's just amazing just to think that the president would have actually called uh, two canvassers in Wayne County or in any state to try to interfere with that process. I wrote four affidavits stating some of the things that I saw that I thought were suspicious. I stopped the vote count a couple of times and made them enter my challenge into their poll book. So there were a lot of things going on. So for President Trump to encourage the canvassers not to certify if they had questions about the validity of the Wayne County vote, I think it was the right thing to do. And I would have done the same thing had I been him. Guy's wearing a Trump 2024 hat, by the way, just 
thought I should point that out. And this audio is coming from Fox 2 Detroit. Did I give them Fox 2 in Detroit? Now, of course, it is important to point out that there was no proof that the election was stolen, even though many Republicans, many Trump supporters still claim that it was. Meanwhile, we reached out to Monica Palmer. We did not reach her successfully. And William Hartman, incidentally, actually died in 2021. I'm sure a lot more to come on this story. But as you may remember, they tried the following day to rescind their vote for the certification of the election results in Wayne (laughs) County the next day. But they were ultimately unsuccessful. Reporting live, Camila Mary, Fox 2 News. All right. So let me review here. I'll give you what ABC News has reported. Donald Trump pressured two election officials not to certify the 2020 vote totals in Wayne County, Michigan, according to a recording of a post-election phone call disclosed in a new report by the Detroit News. The former president's 2024 campaign neither confirmed nor denied the recording's legitimacy, insisting in a statement that all of Trump's actions after his defeat to Democrat Joe Biden were taken to uphold his oath of office and ensure fair elections. Trump has consistently, according to ABC News, repeated falsehoods about the 2020 election as he runs again for the White House. No evidence of voter fraud that could have changed the outcome of the election has since emerged in a litany of federal, state, and outside investigations. Moving on. The November 17, 2020 phone call included then-President Trump, Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, and Wayne County Election Authorities, Monica Palmer and William Hartman, both of whom are Republicans. The Detroit News reports this now. Uh, Trump told the two canvassers that they would look, quote, terrible if they certified results after having initially opposed certification. That's according to the Detroit Free Press. The two ultimately issued signed affidavits asserting their opposition to certifying Wayne County's results. I wonder why. The newspaper said the recordings were made by a person who was present for the call with both Palmer and Hartman and the former president. Now, in the recordings, Trump can be heard saying, we've got to fight for our country. We can't let these people take our country from us. According to the Detroit Free Press, Ronna McDaniel, the GOP chairwoman then and now, said during the call, if you can go home tonight, do not sign it. We will get you attorneys. Trump saying later on, we'll take care of that. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson on Twitter As this news unfolds, it's worth reminding that in 2020, Michigan was first among the battlegrounds to go in the certification calendar. Had Trump succeeded in delaying or preventing a county or statewide certification in Michigan, that precedent would have been used to delay or block certification in Pennsylvania, which was certifying the following week, Georgia, and so on, paving the way for the false slate of electors. We knew we were the first domino to go and that what Michigan did would impact others. Georgia State University professor Anthony Michael Kreese tweeting, It seems like Ronna McDaniel could be in some trouble in Michigan and Donald Trump may be facing a fifth set of charges. A promise was offered in exchange for an official act, unlike in Georgia, where the preferred method appears to have been limited to browbeating state officials. And that's before any other public corruption slash election fraud conspiracy type crimes that could be well implicated. The real issue, he writes, is whether providing a lawyer is a, quote, valuable thing. Uh, Having been through a 
divorce where I had him on retainer for thousands each month, I'd say it was. On the other hand, Crease writes, it isn't the kind of thing that we typically would consider as being offered as a bribe. On the other hand, it is a materially valuable thing offered in exchange for a corrupt official act. If we think of bribery statutes as criminalizing the offering or accepting of goods that are enriching or personally benefiting the public official, then dangling an attorney falls outside that prohibition. But the terms of this statute aren't as limited. Be curious to see case law, he writes. On the Trump judicial front, the Washington Post reporting around 2.30 this afternoon that the Supreme Court said it will not fast-track consideration of Donald Trump's claim that he has immunity from prosecution for actions he took as president, a question crucial to whether he can be put on trial for plotting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. That's kind of a sort of win for the Trump camp, because Jack Smith was looking to get an answer on this pretty fast before going headstrong into prosecution. The court's one-sentence order, from which there were no noted dissents, excuse me, I need to cough, Clarence Thomas, means a federal appeals court in Washington will be the first to review a district judge's ruling earlier this month rejecting Trump's claim of immunity. Arguments are scheduled for January 9th. Washington Post continues, special counsel Jack Smith had asked the justices to short-circuit the normal appellate process and quickly settle the question of presidential criminal immunity, which the Supreme Court previously has not been called upon to resolve. He said public interest required intervention now, so the federal election obstruction trial of Trump, the front-runner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, could proceed as scheduled in March. And of course, you know, now that we're heading into a holiday weekend and can't imagine there's much going on next week in Washington either, we're all waiting with bated breath to see what the Supreme Court does or decides not to do. There's even talk that they may just totally punt on the Colorado State Supreme Court ruling that Trump cannot belong on the GOP primary ballot. And that's something to point out, by the way. The state Supreme Court has only weighed in on the primary ballot, not a general election ballot just yet, but obviously I think they laid a precedent to to do that later. And of course, now you're hearing from right-wing states, uh, Ken Paxton in Texas already talking about trying to figure out ways to legally keep Joe Biden off off the ballot in Texas. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, earlier this week on the Christian Broadcasting Network asked about... uh, any mulligans he would like to take on the primary campaign so far, considering he's not not only not the front runner, but not even the chief antagonist for a Donald Trump return to the top of the ticket. Here's what DeSantis had to say. Oh, boy, this guy. Is there anything you, if not regret, uh, you look at this campaign and go, oh, I wish I would have done that. Uh, how, how do you feel about that? Well, there's always different things that happen. I mean, I would say if, if I could have one thing change, I wish Trump hadn't been indicted on any of this stuff. I mean, yeah, me too. I wish he hadn't done anything to warrant being indicted either, but are you going to mention that? Honestly, I, I think that, you know, from Alvin Bragg on, um, I've criticized the cases. I think, you know, someone like a Bragg would not have brought that case if it was anyone other than Donald Trump. Mm. And so, you know, he, someone like that's distorting justice, which is bad. But I also think it distorted the primary. Um, and I think it's, it's been, it's been that those have kind of been the main issues that have happened. Because it's helped last, him. Is that what you're saying? And so therefore it's, it's both, both that, but then it also is just crowded out, I think, so much other stuff. And it sucked out a lot of oxygen. And so, uh, 
um, you know, some of these some of these guys like Bragg, you know, they, they abuse their power. I mean, incidentally, he's a Soros-backed prosecutor. I'm the only one in the country. I've removed two, one from Tampa and one from Orlando, and it does show you that they view law as an extension of politics, and that gets very, very dangerous when this country goes down that road. But that's interesting. You're saying it made him stronger in a way, and it made it, made it tougher for you and others. I think for the primary, it distorted. Primary. Yeah, I think it distorted. Now, in a general election, I think the Democrats have, have a plan on this. Uh, I think the media has a plan on this. And I think if it gets to the point where six months from now, Trump's the presumptive nominee and he's having to go through all this, they, are, they, they have a plan for how they're, they're going to ride this out. Uh, almost, I hear shades of Vivek Ramaswamy there because Vivek earlier in the primary season on a debate stage said something about a, a plan to hatching a plan to somehow make a switcheroo on the ticket or something like that. And I, I, I think DeSantis walked right up to that line wanting to say that, but didn't quite say that. How rich, though, that Ron DeSantis, just an awful campaigner, just awful on the national stage, is blaming everyone but the candidates running against Donald Trump for the GOP primary for the reason that they can't take him down. You can't find a more flawed presumptive nominee for either party in our lifetimes. Maybe in, in this nation's history, how far back would you have to go to say, oh yeah, that guy was definitely worse than Donald Trump. All the indictments, all the fraud, char not just charges, but I mean, it's well documented. The man skipped paying tabs so many times in New York, he was famous for it. He had been smitten. Smited? Smited? Is that what it is? It's not smitten, because smitten means something. It, he got smited by the Nixon, GOP Nixon, Republican Nixon administration for housing discrimination. He got caught on a hot mic claiming that he had full access to grab them by the pussy. Actually found guilty in civil court for sexual assault. On that same hot mic I alluded to, openly bragged about moving on women because they let you. When you're a celebrity. And I'm not, I haven't even brought up his first term. The disaster that was the Trump presidency. And I know those on the right. Oh, well, you know, the greatest economy in American history. No, it wasn't. His first three years were actually not as good as Obama's last three years. So the economy was already sort of like, okay, you may want to call it cruise control and there are those that want to say, well, the Trump tax cuts really gave a jolt, an initial jolt that really didn't last very long. It's it's like it's like taking a five-hour energy. That doesn't mean you're going to be good for the next two days. No, you're eventually going to have a caffeine crash. And not only did we not enjoy a prolonged boost, again, Obama's last three years on most economic indications were better than Trump's first three years. Greatest economy in history? Well, yeah, he inherited a pretty good one, that's for sure. And then, of course, COVID came, and he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't handle that right. Never, I haven't even gotten to the fact that uh, under his administration, we dismantled our pandemic response unit. And, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, there's no way of knowing if that unit had stayed together and continued doing its work if we might have been able to circumvent the COVID-19 pandemic. It certainly didn't help to dismantle it. God, I just I just love that the Nikki Haley's and the Ronda Santis's of the world are just bemoaning the fact that they of the Law and Order Party are really upset that 
law and order is coming after the presumptive nominee of the party, and that's why they can't beat him. Instead of, I don't know, all getting together and coalescing behind behind a, a common... Well, and Vivek's never going to do that because he's aiming to be Trump's veep. Maybe Nikki Haley is too, I don't know. Although she's basically been saying that she believes that the country doesn't need a, a second Donald Trump term. That doesn't exactly bode well for, you know, the ring-kissing party that Donald's throwing right now. It just cracks me up, man, that it's everybody else's fault but theirs for running poor campaigns or not understanding that they're running against a deeply flawed human being who, by the way, isn't even a conservative. You want to win over conservatives? Point that out. Okay, so Joe Rogan... Joe Rogan got fact-checked. Oh, making fun of Joe Biden, the old man saying crazy stuff. Ho, 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 ho. Wait, who said that? Oh, it was, wait until you hear this live fact-checking being done on the Joe Rogan show. We have that for you when the run show returns in minutes on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, wherever you podcast. Final segment of the run show for Friday. And far be it for me to cast aspersions on the likes of Joe Rogan. I mean, I could sit here and ask, why the hell does that guy have any platform for complex domestic and international political dialogue? <laughs> and then, yet here I am, uh, what am I, a 27th year sophomore from the University of Georgia. I think I could still go to school if I wanted to. I have to work my way out of academic probation, and the tuition is costly. And uh, But but nonetheless, I'm, I'm just uh, a radio veteran who transitioned into real estate and then decided, you know, I, I still kind of want to do this whole audio thing and found uh, a platform here. And I'm grateful to America One Radio for uh, granting me an hour weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on their app and stream. So grateful to that. And for you, if you listen via podcast as well, for thinking, okay, I'll give this guy a shot and you keep coming back. I'm so grateful for that. Nonetheless, I really scratch my head sometimes when I when I look at who is piloting political discourse in this country when it's the likes of Joe Rogan, a bit role character actor on sitcoms, I think of news radio, was that the one? And then hosted, remember Fear Factor, where people did icky things and ate icky stuff, and he was the host of that reality show. And next thing you know, he has a podcast, and he's influential on, if not a global scale, a, a, a national scale. And why? His ties with MMA and that uh, bro culture, I like to call it. And I've often thought that Joe may have had an open mind, but I hear a lot of dumb stuff out of him. And he pulls a lot of dumb stuff out of other folks. But this one, from it's all him. He's, he's got to fall on this grenade because this is all him. He became the victim of a fact check on his own podcast. He went off on uh, Joe Biden's, you know, alleged cognitive decline and attributed a really goofy statement to Joe Biden that while, by the way, sort of speaking 
in a more positive tone about Donald Trump, only to find out that what he was railing on Biden for was actually something that Donald Trump had said. I'm going to let you listen in on this conversation. As it went down, he's on with, um, of all people, an MMA fighter, Bo Nickel, when they're having this conversation. Talk about the Revolutionary War. He's like, what? Well, you know, there's people that voted for Biden that are doing it now. They're, yeah. They're like, I, what did I do? Right. Like, what did I choose? Like, I, how is this guy? Yeah, you just can't listen to an interview where he's saying some of the stuff he says that just makes no sense at all. It's like you, you can't listen to those interviews and feel like you made a good decision. I, I don't know how did you Did you hear what he said like yesterday or a couple of days ago? He's talking about the Revolutionary War. He's like, one of the reasons why we lost the Revolutionary War... One of the problems with the Revolutionary War was they didn't have enough airports. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen that? I saw that. <laughs> like, what that? The like, pull him. Mm. It's crazy. If, yeah. if you were, if you had any other job and you were talking like that, yeah. they yeah. would go, hey, you're done. If you talked like that yep. to a doctor yep. at your yeah. medical exam for to fight, Agreed. they'd be like, okay, like, obviously right. you're not fighting. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> you yeah. would also, here's, you know, eight weeks of... of being helped out by professionals, yep, like, right? You, you might not ever do anything. Again. No, it's yeah. it's it's one of the wildest things ever. It's insane. Yeah, and the the media gaslighting you to protect. It's just people are so afraid oh. of Trump being in office and yeah. Republicans being in office. You know, a few moments later, hanging out with the guy, I'm like, man. Well, you know, it's just the media narrative. I mean, so many people were fed this lie that he, the Russia collusion. Yeah. Was this was this the video you're talking about? Let me see what this one says. I don't think it is. What? Oh. By the way, the same stable genius that said the biggest problem we had in the Revolutionary War is we didn't have enough airport. <laughs> Whoa. That yeah, it? that's it. Whoa. Right. Yeah. What? Just for, for the record. Uh -huh. Is that fake? It's not fake. Here it comes. But he was referencing Trump saying that. Here's what Trump's saying it in 2019. Oh. Donald Trump said something about that. He didn't say G Jesus. He said a stable genius, and that's where the, oh. the transcription. Let me hear what it says. What did he say? <clears throat> in June of 1775, the Continental pivot. Congress created a unified army out of the revolutionary forces encamped around Boston and New York and named after the great George Washington commander-in-chief. The Continental Army suffered a bitter winter of Valley Forge, found glory across the waters of the Delaware, and seized victory from Cornwallis of Yorktown. Our army manned the airport. It ran the ramparts. <laughs> it took over the airports. It did everything it had to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like that's it. Wow. you can yeah. tell too. It sounds like a little different. He's like, you can tell he like messed up his words, but yeah, yeah. Mm. He's just, I don't know. To go over the airport. Well, that's the thing funny. about that's but the thing about media these days. It's like, yeah. you, you got to look into it. Yeah, interesting that they just made that pit. Oh well, clearly he f***ed up. It, nothing about cognitive decline with Donald Trump making that mistake that you attributed to cognitive decline when. You thought it was Joe Biden that said it. Yeah, listen, I have bemoaned, as many do, the fact that it appears we're on a trajectory for a Biden-Trump rematch. And as much as I feel Democrats' prospects would be better with someone else atop the ticket, that is what we're headed for. And if we're going to have a conversation about cognitive decline, then we have to be fair 
about that conversation. There is plenty of evidence that the 77-year-old Donald Trump, who is just a few years younger than Joe Biden, doesn't appear to have his together either, if that's what we're going to weigh our decision on. But intellectual lightweights and goofballs like Joe Rogan, who like to take pot shots at Joe Biden because he's an old man, well, Trump ain't much younger. And Biden's battled a stuttering issue that he's overcome in large part. What is the issue that Trump's trying to overcome? Hmm. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Have a great holiday weekend. Back here Tuesday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com. Show notes, ronshowatl.com.